Welcome to the Talent Pool Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Kaplan, founder and CEO of Kaplan Partners, a retained executive search and board advisory firm headquartered in Philadelphia. I am particularly delighted about today's podcast guest, Bill McNabb. Bill is the former chairman and CEO of Vanguard and the current director of IBM and United Health Group, among other organizations. Bill is an internationally recognized governance guru, and I am delighted to have him with us today. Welcome, Bill. Thanks, Alan. It's great to be here. So diving right into the talent pool, you won't remember this, but it was very memorable for me. You spoke to the CEO Alliance Group at Philadelphia Country Club in October of 2015. I know you do tons of speaking. I still have the notes actually from that session. And the reason I have the notes is it was so impactful for me because your talk centered all around talent at Vanguard, the behaviors of high-performing teams, key considerations around people and the expectations of senior leaders. And I, being in the human capital business, I was very taken with, with what you said and how you said it in your focus. So maybe start us off with where did these enlightened philosophies of Bill McNabb around managing organizations, which is so people-centric, where did they come from? You know, it's an interesting question, Alan, and one I, I, I sometimes contemplate myself. Uh, thank you for remembering that. I actually remember the talk. There were, um, it's one of those um, experiences you have, you know, once in a great while where the audience just asks great questions, as you recall, and there was a lot of back and forth. So, you know, for me, you know, I grew up one of five kids, uh, upstate New York, uh, big emphasis on education from my parents and uh, ended up going off to college uh, where I thought I was going to play basketball, but the coaches maybe thought otherwise. And I ended up walking onto the rowing team. Yep. And I actually think in a lot of ways that was the defining moment, if you will. Um, when I look at my life sort of pre-rowing and post-rowing, that experience uh, in college really changed the way I thought about a lot of things. You know, two, two things in particular. You know, one, um, it redefined my definition of hard work. I thought I knew what it meant to work hard. I had no clue. Um, and, and, you know, you think of rowing, you think it's all physical, but there's a lot of mental work that goes in as well. And then um, being a member of a team, and, you know, I, I was very blessed to be with a group of guys. Um, two of our boatmates ended up going on to make the uh, U.S. Olympic team. And the thing that really struck me with um, my experience in rowing was one of the things my teammate, actually, he was the captain of our team, said, he goes, you know, this isn't basketball. And, you know, it's not like you have, you know, at the time, Kareem Jabbar, who was, you know, the great player uh, for the Lakers later on, of course, you know, Michael Jordan or whatever, who can just come in and dominate a game. Um, you, you're only as good as the collective will of the eight individuals and the coxswain in the boat. And, you know, frankly, everybody has to sort of raise their game and you actually have to sublimate, sublimate your ego to the betterment of the team. And, you know, those lessons actually really um, kind of became part of, you know, what I wanted to be, if you will, um, going forward. And, you know, that experience led me to come to Philadelphia to continue competing, but also to teach and coach. 
And of course, coming here to, to Philly, I got exposed to Wharton. It was the only school I applied to. I, I didn't know how dumb that was, but I was <laughs> lucky enough to get in. And uh, Wharton led me to Wall Street, which I, I only lasted a couple of years on Wall Street before I was looking for something a little more purpose-driven. And when I came down and interviewed with uh, this little tiny firm in Valley Forge, uh, the Vanguard Group, and met Mr. Bogle and Jack Brennan, um, I remember Jack Bogle in particular saying to me, um, looking at my resume and going, young fella, I don't know why you come here. And I said, well, Mr. Bogle, you asked me to interview. And he said, we're a tiny firm. You're working for this global conglomerate. And he went on and on to um, you know, talk about why would I even think about doing this for this little tiny uh, company at the time. And um, I remember and then, of course, he spent about an hour telling me all the reasons why I should. And uh, Jack Brennan um, talked a lot about team when I interviewed with him. And of course, that I wasn't seeing any team element where I was before. And hearing him talk about that and the importance of it, you know, it, it kind of just felt right. And, uh, and the last part of the story where it all sort of comes together was... Um, since I was back in Philadelphia, I went out to see my uh, longtime rowing coach who had become almost a second father to me. And, and I, I told him, you know, I'm thinking about leaving Wall Street, but, but, you know, it's this little tiny company. I don't know, you know, it's hard to know. And he's like, he shook his head and he said, you have to do this. He, he said, what you, the way you describe this company, he goes, it's totally meant for you to be there and you don't belong on Wall Street. And uh, we were sitting in his backyard in Roxborough eating Dallas. Sandro cheesesteaks. I could see this like it was yesterday. And uh, that was the final straw, if you will. And I ended up coming and starting at Vanguard. I was a couple of years out of business school, so a very junior position. And then, you know, a lot of, a lot of lucky breaks came my way. That's great. Well, um, when we had met um, that first time in uh, 2015, my son um, rode for a couple of years at Haverford School where um, I know you taught and, you know, we're patron of the rowing program there. So I remember we had some conversation about that. And um, I knew I, I wasn't even going to bring it up because I knew the theme of rowing and the teamwork was going to come up in this conversation because it really yeah. is in your DNA. And the fact that you brought it right to the forefront of the conversation, I think, was, was so interesting. But as you then end up managing a company, you know, which, you know, Back, back when we first talked, had about 14,000 employees. It probably has 20,000 today, you know, and, and 80, 90% of those people are operations and customer centric, not even on the investment side, which gets all the attention. How do you translate to building that culture at such a large scale? Because it's really can be challenging to translate that across an organization. Yeah. Well, you, you know, it, that's, it, it's a very fair observation and, you know, I think one of the things, and we, and, you know, you, companies go through different phases. So, you know, our, our first phase of existence, we were led by a brilliant founder who, in a lot of ways, drove everything. And, and, and that was appropriate for the time. And then as we became, you know, a more serious, larger company, and we were beginning to confront some of those issues, you know, my predecessor, Jack Brennan, began to pivot us toward much more of a, a team culture. And then our group, we really tried to, you know, as, as you know, from our interactions, we really tried to hammer that, that point home that high performing teams are a great way to create a sustainable 
um, level of success in an organization. And you know, it's hard work, Alan. You 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 have to create um, expectations as to how you're going to behave as a team, and you have to understand. Everybody has to understand their roles in the team. And I'll give you a really just simple, practical example. When I would um, go to see somebody um, to let them know that they were going to join the C-suite team, you know, we call it our senior staff. Um, my first comment always was, "Congratulations, welcome to senior staff. You're going to help us run the company. And oh, by the way, your day job is going to be taking care of HR or taking care of investments or taking care of whatever operational group or whatever." And it was this idea that everyone was becoming part of this so-called team one and where the, you know, it was really all about the company and therefore our clients success. And your function was very important, but it was a secondary part of that. And, you know, we tried to establish that culture, um, you know, very visibly and we actually aligned everything we did with that. You know, we moved people from group to group um, almost seamlessly. We um, created compensation systems that actually rewarded um, team performance and the collective performance of, of the company. And, you know, we looked for people who actually could buy into that mentality. And it wasn't everybody, you know, there, there and, and look, there were some great people who came from other models. You know, I, I, there are companies I see out there today, you know, as I sort of scan the universe where it's a collection of all stars and everybody does their thing. But I don't think that's as sustainable. I think you you struggle to go from one generation to another. And, you know, one of the things I'm really proud about, you know, at Vanguard is um, we were able to transcend generations and actually, I think, get better every generation. And, you know, it was interesting. Um, I think it was the fall of 2018, maybe um, somewhere around there, a couple of years ago now, um, right before Mr. Bogle passed away. And we had all four Vanguard CEOs in the same building on the same floor. Cool. Um, and, and, and I remember remarking at his uh, memorial, um, what other company could you do that? That's not family owned, right? Like right. where could you have four generations of CEOs together and no doubt about who was running the company. Tim Buckley was running the company at the time, our fourth CEO, but it was pretty cool. And, and, and again, I think got to the, you know, the evolution of the organization to this incredibly team-oriented um, structure. Well, when you were talking about team, I had a vision of uh, eight people in a boat again, you know, and thinking, you know, hey, congrats, you know, you did really great and your double or in your quad and now you're getting promoted to, you know, the big boat, you know, with eight and if it ever wasn't about you, it's really now not about you, you know, and it's, you know, it's congrats, congrats on your success to get here. It's not about you anymore. It's all about the team and, and, you know, all of that. So again, those analogies keep coming through for me. You also said um, in that prior talk, something to the effect of one of the highest aspirations or compliments an executive gets is when someone on their team is promoted and developed and goes to another part of the organization that you were not fostering you know, a linear straight up path, but people moving around and building more relevant skills 
um, and being recruited to other parts of the company that you get rewarded for that as opposed to, you know, the typical culture that you were talking about where maybe you don't want to let your stars go because, you know, they make you look good. No, our stars have to go where the company needs them for the benefit of the organization and themselves and their development. Yeah, it's absolutely correct. Um, you know, and, and, and it, be, it has become a real interesting um, aspect of the company. And, and when you look at the current team, they've all held roles in multiple groups. Uh, Tim Buckley, you know, um, himself, um, you know, our, our fabulous CEO, he has run IT. He's run our retail business. Earlier in his career, he was, you know, part of a corporate function that really focused on strategy and product development and competitive analysis. He's literally been in every aspect of the company. Great. And it, it's, it's a fantastic background for somebody to have. Um, several of his direct reports are in their second or third senior role on this senior team. And you know, again, um, you might say, don't you lose some expertise? We don't think so. Um, we think the, um, you know, even the functional um, qualities and, and, and necessities, if you will, change so rapidly that actually it's really good to get a fresh perspective and a fresh set of eyes. And right. you have to be constantly learning. And if you're, you know, frankly, if you're thrown into the deep end, you may learn a little bit faster. Um, right, and right. that's what we do with a lot of our people. And I'll tell you, it's been a, it, it has worked for us. I, I recognize it doesn't work in every organization, but um, our guys are really, have gotten really, really good at it at this point. Well, and it, it, it seems to me that it, um, you're rounding out, you're validating leadership and management capabilities by taking people out of their comfort zone, out of their core area of expertise. And Frankly, we have too many clients that don't do that. You know, we preach to them and say, look, if you think this person might be a future leader, future CEO, and you say to me, oh, I, oh, I can't afford to take them out of that role, I would say you can't afford not to take them out of that role and stretch them and give them skills and give them different experiences, you know, which makes them better potentially as CEO and proves that, you know, they have the right leadership capability. So it's, it's so interesting. Um, the way Vanguard does it, I have so much respect for for the company and and you as a servant leader. So so sort of maybe the ultimate servant leader. So taking that a step further, you are that servant leader. You you've run the company with fifteen thousand employees or more at the time. Now you're a board member. You know and you've obviously interacted with boards and board members. You know forever in your career, but you're not managing anymore, right? You're you're governing. The role of the board is different and should be. Talk about that transition, especially, you know, major, huge companies, iconic brands like IBM. How's that transition been for you? What have you, what have you learned or had to adapt to? Well, you know, it's, it's a really good uh, question. And, and, and your observation on governance versus management is spot on. I, I think that's the hardest thing. I mean, you know, at, at my heart, you know, or in, you know, I'm an operator, right? Like I love getting into the de detail. I love rolling out my sleeves and, you know, we had a very hands-on leadership culture at Vanguard. So um, we weren't big on hierarchy. So if you needed an answer to a question, you know, you go to wherever you could get that answer. And we all serve time on our phones so that we stayed in touch with the clients and our frontline crew. 
So um, for me, the shift to the board was actually a little bit of a culture shock, even though I'd seen a lot of boards. Um, and I have to constantly remind myself, I'm here to help govern, not run the business. Now, however, that said, um, there's been a real evolution in terms of how boards function or need to function, uh, again, in my opinion. And as you know, we've got a new book, uh, I've got two co-authors coming out on, um, on this topic. And, you know, it used to be, you know, literally, Alan, a decade ago, if you go in and you put a bunch of directors in a room and say, so what do you guys do? They're like, we pick the right CEO and get out of the way. And, you know, the more enlightened ones might say, yeah, we have a strategy retreat every year or two, and we work with them on that. And yeah, we talk about the big risks in the company. Um, to me, given the just unbelievable pace of change and um, growth in so many uh, organizations, that's just not sufficient. And so what we're seeing best of breed companies do in the boardroom, you know, we're seeing boards really engage around talent much, much more broadly than just the CEO. And make no mistake, selecting the right CEO is still you know, the hardest thing and the most important thing a board does. But actually understanding the breadth of talent and the culture that that talent creates is incredibly important. We think boards need to be engaged on a continual basis around strategy, not setting strategy, but constantly pushing, probing, and working with managements to create better strategies. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, you know, at my first six months as CEO, um, uh, we looked at possibly actually doing an acquisition. That's something I talk about a lot. And um, it would have been a really breathtaking thing if it had happened. We, in the end, it, it proved to be too complex and not the right thing for us to do. But one of my directors, or my lead director actually at the time said to me, so you were willing as a baby CEO to come in here and talk to the board about doing something we as a company have never done at a scale we've never even contemplated. And um, with all kinds of implications throughout, not just Vanguard, but the capital markets. And I kind of said, yeah. And he goes, so what's that tell you you need to be thinking about strategically now that you're not going to do it? It was, you know, you might say, well, that sounds really simple. It, it was an absolutely breathtaking question. And it took our team into a completely different directions um, in terms of things we needed to contemplate. And so when I, when I think about board engagement on strategy, I always go back to that moment where that's where that crystallized for me. He didn't, this board member didn't tell us what to do, but by asking that question, he made us go so deep. And I would tell you today, half of what Vanguard is from an assets under management is a result of that conversation. Wow. And you know, so Vanguard today is $7 trillion, three and a half trillion is here today because of that conversation would not be here otherwise. And um, that to me is, is exactly what a board should be doing in terms of probing and pushing on strategy. And I think risk, by the way, is just the other side of the strategy coin. So, you know, it, it's got to have an equal footing. And again, not telling companies, oh, here are the risks as I see them, but how are you thinking about the risks?
How are you probing? How are you pushing? How are you developing your frameworks? What are you doing to mitigate these risks? What are you doing? You know, how are you thinking about black swan events? You know, I, none of us had the pandemic um, on right. our contingency list, but I will tell you, we had other things that were similar in terms of impact in, you know, that made us think, how would we go virtual quickly? And again, you know, all credit to Tim uh, and, and the team at Vanguard today, you know, they managed to move the entire company to virtual in a week, um, which was extraordinary. You think yeah. about it. And, and, and by the way, I saw, you know, EY do it. I saw IBM do it. Everybody pretty much did it. Do it. You know, it, you know, the best companies figured it out, but many of them had thought about, no, none of them had pandemic at, right. in their playbook, but they had other things that were similar. And, and again, likely a lot of it because of the board uh, conversations. Now, I want to come back to strategy and risk a little bit later, but um, you know, you said the most important role of the board is selecting a CEO. I 100% agree. We tell our clients that all the time in CEO search projects, and we've probably done 75 or 80 of them. And you've also said the most, you know, having the right directors is the single most important element of having a high-performing board. And I frankly quoted you on that a number of times. Nope, that's okay, with attribution. Um, but when you think about the, the board role in that CEO succession and other senior level succession dynamics, Vanguard's done it obviously as well as, as any company, but you've seen it from other companies. You've been through with IBM recently with Senior Remedi's retirement. Talk a little bit about what you've seen as best practices for boards in terms of CEO and, and the executive succession process. Yeah, so um, let me break it into two pieces. Um, so I'll, I'll start with the CEO succession. Um, I, I think, uh, again, if I were gonna be critical of industry, I'd say too many companies leave it up to the CEO to pick his or her successor. 100%. Sure, in your practice, you see this all the time. and. Look, you know, nobody knows the company and the talent better than the CEO. But what I've observed, and again, this is not, I don't have stats behind this, um, it, but it's, so it's just observation. Um, many CEOs are very comfortable selecting people who are a lot like them because that's, you know, they've been successful. If, if, they're, if they're actually in a position where they're recommending a successor, they've done a good job generally. And um, they're like, well, I'm going to a little more of me, you know, and I, I'm being a little bit simplistic there, but you well, see, I, I know exactly what you're saying. So, you know, what I think boards have to do is they have to actually take this process back a little bit because it's the board's job at the end of the day and the board should drive the process. And I think the board needs to really engage in a, a very hard discussion about what are we going to need over the next five to 10 years. And and that may be quite different than what we have today. And, um, you know, frankly, this is where a firm like yours and others can be very helpful because sometimes you need a referee in the boardroom to, yeah. to push. Um, so I'm, I, I actually like having uh, outside help on, on these searches, um, really to make sure that the, the definition of what we need is incredibly rigorously thought through. Um, you mentioned IBM. I would give Ginny Rometty amazing credit for allowing the board to really have an, a very robust process. She was 
insisted on it. And she actually contributed mightily, I don't think she'd mind me saying this, um, to the idea that whoever we pick has got to look different than her. And, you know, just a different set of experiences, different set of, um, a different time, um, it's a different you know, for what we were going to need. We had just bought Red Hat. We, you know, we're betting the company on, you know, the hybrid cloud and AI. It's a different kind of leader than somebody who's, you know, built the business up around consulting and so forth. So it, it was to me, again, I, I was smiling, you know, as I'm watching this because it was exactly how I think it needs to happen. Um, and, and I think um, as part of that, you know, you go through, you define what you want, and then you've got to have, a, I, I, again, a, what I would call a rigorous scorecard that all the directors as they're, you know, in, you know anybody who's part of the interview process, they're all looking for this, the, they're playing from the same page, if you will. And it's not, you know, what do you think, Bill? What do you think, Jane? What do you think, Susie? It's no, here are the competencies we said we need for the future here's how important this one is versus this one. And this is how I evaluate this person. Um, the other thing I would say is there always should be a very robust discussion about inside versus outside. I would tell you though, if there's not a great inside candidate, the board and management have failed. It doesn't mean that that's the answer, but I think if you don't have, and, and I'm gonna, you know, obviously crises happen and you've got to you've got to make radical change right right it's usually a set of failures in and of themselves of course but i think if you don't have a really legitimate inside candidate um, the ceo has not done a good job growing uh, his or her talent pool and the board hasn't done a good job governing that element of talent development that is you know i think fundamentally the most important thing boards do totally so, agree um, with that. Totally the last point I would way. make um, is once you make the decision, you should have great clarity and transparency around the transition. So, you know, um, when we announced that Tim was going to replace me and I was going to stay on uh, the board and chair the board for some period of time uh, after uh, he became CEO, you know, one of the things you worry about, I, you know, I, I would have been happy to be gone in a day. Um, our board wanted a little more continuity. And to our board, you know, our lead independent director, to his credit, he said, okay, you're still going to be chair. I want, I want you to be very clear about what Tim does and what you do. And so Tim and I actually wrote my job description, boiled it down to like six bullet points. And we actually shared it with the, not just our board, we shared it with the entire company. And so there was no doubt who the next CEO was, but people knew, okay, so while Bill is still chair, this is what he's going to be off running around doing for Tim um, and for the board. Um, and that, that actually really made things work incredibly well. And it's interesting. I've been involved in a couple of other situations where we've given that kind of advice and, you know, in, in a private setting, you know, private company setting. And I've watched them do it and it, it really does help. It really helps. Well, we see it oftentimes, you know, a lot of clients say to us, well, how do you feel about the prior CEO becoming chairman or staying on as chairman if they already are, you know, and you know what the best practice data says, you know, that, you know, if, if you're doing it, it should be short duration. But here's what I've really seen. It really comes down to the personality of the retiring CEO. If in fact they are a controlling person and they're micromanaged and they're going to want to be the puppet master from the chairman seat, it's not going to work. 
And if you have somebody who really is willing to do what you just said, define my role as chair. I'm not going to try to run the company. I'm not going to sit in the big office in the same place I was before. I'm not going to create confusion on who's in charge. It can be very valuable for a company to have that smooth, bloodless transition of power when you've got clarity of roles. But if the personality is not going to enable that to happen, the board needs to make a call and say, look, we love you, but you know, we think it's better for the new gal or guy to not have you stick around. I could not agree more. And, and, and generally, I don't think it's a good idea. Um, you know, in our case, we had so much going on. Um, you know, the, the judgment that the board made, and, and frankly, Tim and I talked about this a lot, was, you know, especially with our globalization push at the time, um, wouldn't it be great for me to, to go do a lot of the global client visits um, and, you know, keep that sort of front and center so that Tim could really get his hands around, you know, what it was like to, you know, operate as a CEO with all the, all that comes on. Washington was a similar thing, you know, with all the regulatory um, pressure and, 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 and there's so much going on in Washington at that time. Again, I had 10 years of experience doing that and the ability to sort of front run some of that for him, always checking in, like, if you want us to be positioned slightly differently than I, I have, then let's talk about it. But that really, you know, that's how specific we got, Alan, like it was down to that kind of granularity. And um, it really, I, again, for us worked well. And again, granted, we have a different kind of culture, and it's not for everyone. You know, your other question on executive talent, uh, you know, historically, I think boards have not spent nearly enough time on C-suite and people getting ready for the C-suite. And I do think it's pretty important. Um, and, you know, so again, at Vanguard, one of the things we tried to do was identify not just C-suite roles, but other key roles in the company. And we tried to get the board pretty up to speed on who's in those seats, what our pipeline looked like to replace those people you know, what their retirement horizons might be, you know, was there an area where we were particularly not as strong as we thought we needed to be and how we were thinking about it. Um, but we were, we really tried to actually make the board pretty aware of um, not just the direct reports of the CEO, but I would say the key roles underneath them. And then we also wanted them to have a real flavor for our top couple hundred people and who they were who might emerge as C-suite, possible CEO. Um, and and we, we had a very steady cadence around those discussions. And again, in, in many of the boards I'm in um, on today, you know, we're, we're moving in that direction as well. I would say it's uneven, um, you know, as I look at different companies, some companies do it better than others, but I think it's a really important thing for a board to get its hand, hands around. Awesome. Well, Bill, your insights and experience around talent and governance and strategy, and I mean, they're, they're incredible. And I'm so grateful that you took some time to be with us here today. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing those with us. You've been listening to the Talent Pool podcast. I'm your host, Alan Kaplan from Kaplan Partners. If you'd like to hear more from our guests or learn about our firm, visit kaplanpartners.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Mm -hmm.